Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session number eight. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to Session 8 of the Working Class Audio Podcast. Wow, welcome to 2015. Amazing. I hope this year is prosperous for all of you. I hope it's a safe and happy uh, year for all of you. Of course, it's a time for reflection on 2014. It's a time to make uh, new resolutions and come up with, I don't know, get new energy and new ideas for what you're going to do this year. I hope you all are sitting down to make a list and decide what you're going to be doing. So I'll tell you what we're going to be doing today. We are going to be talking to, first of all, we're going to talk to Jules from Gearslets, because I don't know if you're aware, Jules Standin from Gearslets not only runs the website, but he's got a whole past of recording behind him, of course, you would expect that. And he's got a lot of wisdom to share. So I'm going to have a, a short appearance from Jules today on the show to give us some ideas and some little bits of wisdom here and there. And then uh, our main interview today is with New York recording engineer Steve Silverstein, who I've known for some time, who I made friends with uh, originally through the Tape Op conference and then later the, of course, Potluck Audio conference. So Steve's going to be on today and he'll be telling us about how he does things. I guess that's it. Let's, uh, let's get Jules on the line. Hey. Hey. Can you hear me? Yeah, perfectly. So talk to me a little bit about your thoughts about these these bits and pieces that you sent me. Sure. Some of them are like tips and tricks for freelancers in the trenches, you know, and just ways to get some things done. So, uh, for example, um, pick underused studio to base yourself at. Tell me about that. What it was is that as I was going about my business as a jobbing freelance engineer, I did a lot of demos for, for major labels. They would book a studio, book me, and give a, sh a band uh, that they were interested in looking at, or basically everyone was look interested in looking at, a shot at uh, th a three-day session. And they would record three songs in three days, and they'd want uh, you know the finished demo out of it. And budget started to get a bit tight. That was one of my main clients, the major label demos. But then I then it sort of segued into musicians actually paying for their own demos to you know trying to get a, a major deal. They'd pay for their own demo recordings. Mm -hmm. And when I was working with those bands, they're paying for it themselves. We'd get along perfectly great, uh, have a a good sort of uh, sort of friendly relationship. But there was a sort of a psychological block. They could psychologically figure out to say pay a studio 250 pounds for a day or 300 pounds for a day but when it came to my fee they'd oh so you want to get paid too um right mm. and i found that it's not uncommon for us on the, the studio side of the glass to find musicians what well, it's be a little bit entitled or and so forth like you know every, everything's for them they're a great band so everybody must help them and everything's to get the band going and they sort of in the mix and in the wash of all that they kind of forget that you need to get paid at least that's what i found anyway so i hit upon this um way of psychologically sort of curing that and and what it was is that i would i would hide behind the studio charges so to explain how that works is that I would find a studio that, you know, had some quite a lot of spare time that I liked and that I could work in. And I'd say, look, I can bring you clients, but what I want to do is I want to have this all in charge. We charge for the studio, but in fact, hidden in that is my money, right? So we're going to charge 250 for a day. And they go, oh yeah, two fifty, that's good. And I go, wait a second, a hundred of that's mine. And they go, whoa, one hundred and fifty, that's kind of low for a studio. And I'd say, well, look, think about it. You, there's some cobwebs in the corner in your ceiling, and that was literally true with one of the studios I was dealing with. It was like a ghost town. And, and I'd persuade them. I'd say, listen, 
you're not publicly dropping your rate, right? The, the conception of what the studio is charging is 250, right? Or 350 or whatever. And no one needs to know who's getting what. So their in-house engineers might, they might be sort of skanking their in-house engineers. They were sort of like young kids doing stuff and they, and they just get 40 pounds a day or 50 pounds a day. But, you know, at, at this time I was like in my 30s or whatever and I, I couldn't, be dealing with, uh, couldn't be dealing with that sort of low money. So my money had to be higher. The studio said, okay, we'll give it a try. And what would happen is that uh, at the end of the session is I'd say, you know, you better go and see John in the office. You know that the tapes can't leave until, until he's been paid, you know. And so I could hide behind the sort of admin of the studio. And there wouldn't be this, you know, horrible thought that their engineer chum was actually being paid, you know. It's interesting that the bands would have such an issue with paying for a proper engineer. They psychologically had a money for studio. They had that bit figured out. And you're gonna be, you're gonna be a lot. You're gonna add a lot to this budget. So, and also, as I say, I was in a transitionary period. The major labels, they had a sort of a budget amount, which say was a thousand pounds. You know, I don't know, three hundred thirty odd quid a day or something. Now you could book the studio for that much money and get a fifty pound a day in-house engineer, right? Or the bands I was bringing in, I'd go to the rehearsal studio, I'd do, be doing some pre-production with them, I'd get to know the tunes, and I was definitely sort of on the, on, the, on the production side as well, even though there are demos. And so I'd, instead of the studio getting, uh, say, 300, the engineer getting 30 or 50 or whatever it was, the studio would get 250 and I'd get 100. And it made no difference to the labels. So the labels didn't have to find an extra figure for me. It was just, it was just easy. You know, it's, it's quite common to price things to make it easy, you know? Yeah. You, have, you have a set meal, that's easy. The lunchtime special, that's easy. The nice studio with jewels, easy. You know, it's all, all, all just one rate. So it got to the point where there was this one studio I was working at that I really liked, and I would give them 150 a day and i said to them on one project i said um he said well what are we charging on this because i'd have a great relationship obviously with the owner and i'd say 350 and he said you're joking you're getting 350 from my studio that's amazing and i said yeah but you know you're getting 150 and i'm getting 200 on this one just because i was able to push the rate and i figured that that, that the project could stand it and the studio owner was, was thrilled because he thought that 350 for uh, something going on in his studio was a terrific thing. Did he have an issue with how much you were getting? He was amazed. He was flabbergasted. He said, Jesus, you know, good on you. Huh. Amazing. How'd you do that? That's great. Fantastic. Come in again, you know. On the flip side, beautiful studio I spent, um, basically based myself out of with this system for two years. At the very beginning, we nearly had a we nearly had a terrible situation because I'd negotiated the studio down, and the studio had been charging a lot more in the '80s. You know, uh, like like some of your previous uh, podcast sessions have referred to. You know, '80s rates that were really big. And this A and R woman got onto the phone talking about something, and, and the stu and, and and the studio owner picked it up, and it really pissed him off that the. the, the they were doing this low rate, and I was like, "Oh, please, you know." And he nearly, he nearly, you know, he nearly blew it. But um, in the end, I did a load of work there. Like any deal, it needs to, it needs to sort of suit both parties, you know. And the studios that I that I worked out of were either either quite cheap or or were nice, and uh, were just desolate and had no work. So it really, it, it was nice to make that partnership, and everybody makes a little bit of money. Yeah. An underused studio, you know, gets, gets some action. Absolutely. And he, here's the thing. I would have to wait until the money cleared in the bank account of the studio before I got paid. As a freelancer, you might think, oh, I'm a bit exposed there, you know. So it's true. What could happen is that if I had a, if a relationship with the studio went wrong, they could rip me off for the last 
session I did for them, you know? And then, of course, that'd be the last session you do with them. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and they knew that as well. And they also knew me as a, a jobbing freelancer around town. And basically, they wouldn't dare because I was waltzing in with clients and I was trusting them too. There was an element of trust. There was a big element of trust on the studio owner that um, at the beginning they'd say, so I invoice for this. And I'd say, yes, you invoice for all of it. And they'd say, and then I pay you. And I'd say, that's right. So, you know, it's, it's a way that, um, that some people, you know, listening to this and out there, your, your uh, audience, they might, some of them, it might appeal to some of them. It might be a way that they can uh, <clears throat> move things forward if they find the struggle to, you know, if they find that people have finance for the studio, yes, big check on that money for you uh, mm, uh if they're struggling with that we'll just make it all one thing keep it simple simple that's it in your email to me in your your thoughts ideas to to discuss mm -hmm. overspent on gear was one of your bullet points tell me yes. more about that yeah so i i, I my studio was was uh as they say like uh, was like a sledgehammer to crack a nut I had just this crazily stocked uh, inventory of gear. In hindsight, I should have had a bit of control with what I bought, and I probably could have got by with a lot more simpler gear. You know, I'd been spoiled working in studios where there was lots of gear, and in the 80s, you know, the amount of higher gear that your band or your label could rent in for you for the session was like a, a, a status symbol. You know, if you had a big tower of rental company, valve gear, and pull techs and all that sort of thing, then you're a, you're a Mr. Cool, you know. And so when it came time to get my own space, I kind of I overdid it. And, you know, running gear sluts as I do, I bump into people that have, you know, kind of pushed things a bit too much and, and overspent. And I remember I was, I, was, I was doing something in a fancy SS, a dual SSL studio in London. And uh, this guy that I brought along with me to, as a buddy to help me do some edits, he, he said, oh, do you mind if I uh, play something on your monitors? I'd love to hear something. And it was, it was my session. It was fine. It was cool. You could play it. And the band were out. It was just us engineers hanging around. He played something. The guy, the engineer said, wow, that sounds really good. And it did. It did sound really good. He said, where'd you do that? And my friend said, on my Porter studio. <laughs> oh, God. And the engineer nearly passed out, you know, and you could see him visibly blanch, you know, and go white. Um, and what it was is the, my friend, he's, he's, his name's Paul Inder, and he's, uh, he's actually Lemmy's son from Motorhead. He's a producer in his own right. At the time, he must have been about, I don't know. 19 or something and he's just golden eared and there's some people that can just take a pile of you know cheap equipment and just or basic equipment and just produce amazing stuff with it you know you must have heard that before yeah i i have had an experience and i hope i get his name right um i i believe it's tim green he was in a band that was called nation of ulysses uh, they were on Discord Records in DC that, you know, kind of t close with uh, Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat. And anyways, he had moved to San Francisco and he had a band. Uh, I think they're still around. I think they're called the Fucking Champs. <laughs> and uh, I was working in a pro audio store, um, Audio Images at the time in San Francisco. And Tim came in and he played me some stuff. And it was very similar to that. I said, wow, this is amazing. What did you yeah. do this on? And he said, well, I've got one of those old TAC four-track reel-to-reels. And my, my mouth was on the floor. I thought, how is it possible that this guy did this kind of work on a, on a, on a TAC? I had worked on a TAC before, and my results had not even come close to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. But, you know, he did it. And uh, it's kind of a magical mixture, really, that, if you, like, I would imagine if I were to put together a, a room today, which my wife would kill me, um, <laughs> if I were to do it today, what are the crucial things? Yeah. One could even open up a, a small a small studio, 
purely for vocal overdubs based around two or three high dollar sought after vintage microphones and probably make a killing because people would, you know, instead of it's like, well, do you rent the mic or, hey, let's just go over here and do our vocal tracks. Yeah, if the room sounded good. Um, that's the other thing is that I was going to say is that 99% of my clients when I had my studio, because I had my own studio for uh, six years, had no idea about, no clue about the gear at all. Uh, they, they didn't know what the Neve was. I mean, they were interested to hear me talk about it a little bit. And they, they were excited that I was excited about it. One or two of them sort of had heard you know, new bits and pieces of it and stuff and uh, didn't go on and on about the equipment or anything. But, you know, having owned it uh, and, and it being in the racks and stuff, um, they really had no idea what, what, what the hell it was. They just wanted to record the music, you know. I had one, I picked up one big client uh, that worked with me for about three solid months for a major label. <clears throat> it was a really significant amount of money. And he did understand the gear. And I think me talking about the gear was actually a draw for him. You know, he, he, he was sort of a guy that wanted to talk about compressors uh, all night, you know, when you're out at a nightclub. You know? But that's very rare, you know. Musicians, it's engineers that know about the gear, but it, your clients are musicians and not engineers, unless you're building a place that is really for freelancers to come in and out of. It's, uh, uh, the musicians don't, by and large, they know bits of it, but they, they, they don't care as much as engineers do. And I think people forget that. I, I would agree. With, this kind of ties into one of your other bullet points. 99% of clients don't know the gear, get mm -hmm. a few crowd pleasers. Can, yeah. you, can you clarify that? Yeah. So I did invest in, I was wondering what to do about vocal mics, and I wanted a couple of good ones as a freelancer. We used to rent in C12s. We used to rent in Neumann uh, U86s. So I thought I'd, I'd like a valve mic. And I looked around and I found that the whole purchasing thing of valve, secondhand vintage valve mics was very, seemed to be very shark infested. And everyone was talking about, you know, getting ripped off. And, you know, it wasn't the original capsule and there were the wrong valves. And I, they could be a bit noisy. I was a bit naive about the noise because digital had just come in and it would not just come in, but Pro Tools was, was fairly new and everything. So I thought, oh, I don't, don't want too much noise. <clears throat> so I bought a, um, a Neumann M149. That mic is in a bazillion pop videos because it's, it's just very cool because it, it's, it's big fat. It's in this big sort of spider cage. When clients came in, and they were singing, in front, I'll put that in front of them. They go, oh, yeah, I've seen one of these before. These are really good, you know, even though they'd never tried it or anything. They, but they'd seen it. So some crowd pleasers are probably a good idea, you know, for what I call client confidence, you know. Mm. You could find a boutique uh, mic that um, possibly, maybe possibly sounded better, but that no one had ever heard of, and everyone could be happy. But there's just this... If you're if you're outfitting a studio with you know getting a few a few key pieces for it, I think this sort of client confidence or standardization, you know, things that they've seen before, it can sort of pay off for you. Well, I would say that the clients that that have been with me for a long time, mm -hmm. they never they never question if what I what we're doing, um, mm -hmm. and if anything, uh, once in a while, you know, I'll put something esoteric in front of them and. They'll look at it and go, oh, wow, what's this? What's the mm -hmm. story behind this? And mm -hmm. you're like, oh, okay, great. So anyways, and then they carry on. And the initial reaction is, is one of wonderment. But after that, they're like, you know, let's get on with it. Mm -hmm. All right. So there you have it. Jules from Gear Sluts giving us a bit of wisdom there. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. 
you might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump on the line here with Steve Silverstein in New York, and uh, we'll catch up after that. Okay. Introduce yourself, Steve. Every, everybody, this is Steve. Hi, I'm Steve, and I guess I've done so many different things around music. Um, the recording is probably the one I'm doing the most these days, and I've dedicated studio space for the first time about a year and a half in. Uh, but some other things I've done, I've written for K-pop about recording, and I'm guessing a lot of your listeners read K-pop. Um, I've played music for a long time. Probably the thing that was the most successful in some sense is a band called Christmas Decorations, and that's sort of in the ambient world, and so we had a record on Cranky, and uh, we run a compilation on this label, 12K, people might know in that world. And then I've assistant edited a book and, about a collection of Aaron Copeland's writings, the composer, and I've probably done a little bit of a few other things that I'm forgetting right now. You say you're a year in, a year plus into a new studio yeah, or, or, or your own doing, personal studio? I share it with two other people. Before that, everything was in my apartment and I would do mobile work and go to band's practice spaces and go to weird houses upstate. I live in New York and go sort of anywhere that was possible to record that could be loud and then do overdubs here and mix here. And eventually came to have a pretty sizable mix set up in my living room. And I live in about a 700-square-foot apartment, which is sizable for New York and probably tiny for anywhere else in the world, and or at least in the country, say for maybe San Francisco, where you are. And so it really wasn't practical to have a full mix set up in my apartment, and it would have been nice to have somewhere to record. So two friends approached me about sharing a space, and it was already set up. We have two rooms and an industrial building in Brooklyn, not that far from my apartment. And it's been working out really great, and I've really enjoyed I've enjoyed, I'd always kind of had space to myself, and I've actually really enjoyed having studio partners a lot more than I thought I would. And I've also just enjoyed not having to work in my apartment and having somewhere permanent to set up is a lot quicker for tracking. So it's been really fantastic. My experience with kind of, I'll just call it co-op studio ownership has been, mm -hmm. you know, you have a, a few engineers, everybody brings gear to the table, agrees on a schedule, agrees on what everybody's going to pay, and then shares the space and keeps the space going. You said it was already set up, so I guess you didn't have to do a build-out. Right. 
And the build-out is honestly pretty modest, but really great for what we need. And did you bring your gear to the table? Mm-hmm. I have a mix set up that I'm mostly the only one who uses. I also use it occasionally for mastering. They both have always... We have two rooms, is one thing I should explain. And the rooms are wired together, so that if someone needs to use both rooms, they can track in one room and have the other room be a live room. Um, the room that's sort of the control room for that setup also has a nice little booth in it. And then... We have two full separate setups, so someone can be overdubbing and I can be mixing on my setup. I brought I have a much more sizable microphone collection than either of my partners and preamp collection, so we all share those. Um, the greatest thing in there, one of my studio partners is a session keyboardist, so the really insane thing that's available there and almost nowhere else is a set of keyboards that's really fun, and I have I can mostly use them on sessions and... I could talk to G. I'd rather not talk about details unless someone were actually working with me. But they're pretty available, and it's been really fun to have access to them to work with. And I should, since I've mentioned that, I should also include our third partner has some great guitar equipment, is responsible for a lot of the setup in the other room that we use as, that I use as a tracking room. So that's there too. I shouldn't leave him out of the picture. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit of tech talk. Uh, talk to me a little mm-hmm. bit about your workflow. What works for you? What What's your method of working pertaining to mixing? Or I guess, are you an in-the-box person or are you an out-of-the-box person? I'm fully an out-of-the-box person. I use as few plugins as possible. I don't buy good plugins. I don't, I'm not excited about spending my money that way. I'm not excited about dealing with maintaining them, but also I've just really learned to work out of the box as a workflow for a few, a lot of reasons that work for me. One is I find it very easy to change multiple things at a time and to shift my attention. So I can be working on a vocal sound and hear something I don't like about the bass, and I can just walk over to that equalizer and change it. Um, A lot of out of the box gear I find just sounds good. When I've used good plugins, I find that they do what they're intended to do well. But they often, I've had a hard time just kind of, you plug it in and something sounds better. And especially about half of what I mix is tracked either all over the place or by someone at home. And just being able to plug something into, say, my Mercury EQP, or I have a custom-built Abbey Road-style compressor. And just plugging into something like these immediately makes something sound better in a lot of cases if it was recorded inexpensively by someone who's not a professional engineer. And I've never found a plug-in that does that. I'm sure that it might be one, but I have a lot greater success with that without board gear, maybe just because I've gotten used to it. Do you do you go into debt for outboard gear? How do you how, what's your your financial relationship with your equipment? Um, I also have a full-time job at a not-for-profit, so that's how I afford kind of my life. And then I pay for equipment, but largely with the money I make from recording. And when the studio was in my apartment and didn't really have any other expenses, that was how I was able to build the studio. Don't you own a Toft mixing board? I do. I have the 16. And how have you found that? It is exactly fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If the headroom isn't the greatest but it works. Um, the equalizers sound really good, but aren't totally phase coherent. And the more, when I didn't have as much outboard EQ, that was helpful because I was more often using them for color. And now that I have outboard EQ on a lot for a lot of things and are using them mostly sort of surgically after the fact, they're probably not my EQ for that, but I can usually make them work. Um, it has a ton, the routing is great. I mean, at that price point, finding something that just works pretty reliably, that has that many sends and returns and that much flexibility and busing has been unbelievable. And I feel like to work out of the box and to have that flexibility and to have something that's reliable, there's no other way I could do it without spending ten times, as, five to ten times as much. And so I assume that uh, you're recording to a digital medium like Pro Tools and then mixing through your board. Yes, and now that I have a space, it would probably make sense to get a tape deck that's on the wish list as a mixed-down deck. Um, but I'd still be mixing the same way. Do you work a consistent amount of hours, not at your day job, at recording? No, it's totally random. Um, when I have a lot of work, I'm very busy. Some weeks I have no work. Some weeks I'm in the studio a couple nights and both weekend days. Or even take days off my other job to fit it in. So it's just really... 
I can't control when people need my time, and I like to be available anytime I can be available in the studio can. If there's someone I want to work with, I try to fit it in. How does that relationship with your recording life and your day job life, how does that work together? Like, are, do you have a flexible day job? Um, It's pretty fixed hours, but I have some vacation time I can use, and I don't work a ton of overtime. It's a pretty laid-back not-for-profit, and when I have to work overtime, it's usually really flexible. Um. So I'm able to, when I put sessions on the calendar, they can stay there. Okay, okay. Well, and I should ask, what is your day job? I do. I manage internet projects for a not-for-profit called the Authors Guild, advocacy and member services organization for authors. Oh, okay. And is that a job that you can do from home? Rarely. I go to an office in Manhattan. Okay. One really great thing is there is a ferry that goes from not very far to my from my office directly to my studio. So when the city added the East River Ferry, it was like the best thing ever because I can go by boat to my studio for my other job. <laughs> so when you work with people, what's the financial arrangement? Because you do have a day job, but you obviously you want to be paid for the work that you do. Tell us about that. Well, I try to keep the rate. I try to be consistent. And I try, my rate's pretty low, I think, for what I offer. And at least I want it to be low, and I hope clients perceive it as low also. And it's slowly trickling up, but I still just try to make it fairer, and I try to make it kind of a friend rate, and that's what everyone I work with. I work with friends. I don't have time to look for bringing in strangers. So I just try to have a pretty fixed, fair friend rate. And occasionally, if I work a lot of hours with someone, it can be a little flexible. Like if it's a two-week project, maybe hours can disappear if someone needs it to, if there's an extra night thrown in or something. But basically, I just try to keep it pretty consistent and pretty fair to everybody. And if it's a short project, really especially fixed. Now, you say you generally don't have time to, to seek out work and that you mostly work with friends, but as, as your friend, your circle of friends grows, does, are you finding your client, your client list growing? It's definitely growing. And one thing is, you know, some friends get busier some years and some don't make a record the next year. A lot of the artists I work with, I feel like have lives that look like mine. Uh huh. They're older. They're not full-time musicians. They're not looking to really explosively grow their art. That's something that they're passionate about and they have enough of a fan base to justify releasing things and justify making them still. And so they don't make a record every year the way a full-time touring band would. And so, you know, every couple of years, a band will come back to me and say, oh, I've finished tracking my new record. Are you ready to mix it? And I'm hoping a songwriter who does that comes back again. Or, you know, we're fin we finally finished writing a new album and we're actually looking to track and mix it with you. Or these are the kinds of conversations I have. So it's not like I have very many steady clients in that way that some people do. In your world, you're not dealing with labels, are you? No. Okay. I mean, I have, but... And on the rare times I have, it's fine, but it's really easier for me not to. It's easier for me to just... The artist gives me money. <laughs> and whether they release it themselves or whether the label, the label releases it or however it works out, I don't... You know, it's great if the label wants to put the record out, but I don't want to... I'd prefer not to deal with a label as a business arrangement. Do you, you know, I guess with your day job, that, that affords you some choices. You don't have to, you don't have to take projects you don't want to take. Right. And, but tell me about your, it, it, and you don't have to say specific numbers if you don't want to, but I mean, talk to me about your overhead at your new space. Um, the rent is by New York standards. It's really insanely affordable, but we have two, not big, are they 500 square foot or something rooms? I forgot how big they are. They're an industrial building and splitting it three ways makes it very feasible for us. You know, I think the big thing is probably none of us really needs it. The studio almost doesn't need to be worried about paying for, I could say. Okay. You know, where even one of my, my studio partner who's a full-time musician, if he doesn't tour regularly, but if he goes on tour, it's not like that hurts his ability to pay for the studio because he's still making money working and it's a small enough percent of his costs that it makes sense. And people sometimes ask me, you know, are you just thinking about getting a bigger space? Would you like that? And I mean, I'd love to have a bigger space, but I really like the fact that the cost of the studio is not a burden. And if there's a month that I have no work even, which fortunately hasn't happened in a long time, it's not going to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. You're, it's, it's that magic, um, I, th I think uh, Steve Albini in past tape op conferences or one in, in fact, the first tape op conference where he was the keynote speaker, he talked about, I think it was the Laffer curve or it was a bell curve. Yeah, he made up that name. The Laffer curve is actually something totally different. It was a, one of Steve's 
typical punchlines. But yes. <laughs> yeah, just that that special curve of of in any situation, and, and in your case, it's like you're growing. You, you've moved. You've got out of your living space for recording. You're now in a commercial space, and now there's starting to be a potential request and or need for a bigger space, which of course can, in my case, that led to a bigger overhead and eventually demise. Mm-hmm. So sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I laugh at it too. <laughs> but in your case, are you? You're obviously aware of it because we're discussing it. But are you? What are, what are your thoughts about that for yourself in your current situation? Are you? Are you? It's, interested I don't in see expanding? it anytime soon. I'd love. It would be amazing, but it would be a pressure that doesn't really make sense for me and doesn't make sense for my studio partners. So something. I don't see something coming up that would make it smarter or practical right now. Um, I'm really happy where I am and I'm happy with people I'm sharing the space with and I can't imagine what would change that. Right. There is occasionally a band that can't fit in their space and hopefully they have the budget to do basics somewhere else. And, you know, I'll take a couple of microphones and a couple of preamps if I need to and go somewhere that has a big room that I like and do a couple of days of tracking and then come back. And that's an option and it's available when artists need it. But I would rather do that. I think I can still do that if I'm doing a record from beginning to end and kind of make a lot more favorable budget than if I had that room to myself. The decisions you've made about working from your home in the past and, and doing remote recording and now you have your new space, is it purely based on the fact that your client base is you like to keep it affordable and therefore if you went to other studios, it wouldn't be as affordable? I think that's a big part of it. If there's one other thing, it's gear that I know. And for me, knowing gear is sometimes more valuable than having better gear. And I have some great gear and I don't feel like it's a huge compromise, but even when I have less good gear, I'd rather have a good mic that I know well than an amazing mic that I've never used. And so keeping it affordable is balanced also with just I know all my outboard gear really well, and I know all the weird things it does, and I know how to gain stage it correctly, hopefully. And so these are things that really add as much value as if I had the greatest gear in the world. And it, even if it's a similar thing that I know how it's supposed to work, I don't know how it gain stages. I don't know what happens if it's being gain staged incorrectly or how to catch that mistake. You know, if it's something like, say, a full-text style EQ that doesn't even have an input or output gain, it can still be overdriven. It usually doesn't sound good when you do. Occasionally it might. Um, it sounds a little different when you saturate it. And probably every product is a little different. So if I went from my Mercury's to a Retro, it would have very, probably different behavior in some of these boundaries. And if I went to a studio that had that, I'd have to warn it. And that's probably something working in plugins. It's, I think you use mostly plugins, and I think feel like that's less of an issue with plugins. So here's here's kind of a very broad question and kind of an odd mm-hmm. odd question at that. Um, what's your attitude with your personal finances? Which what's and and how that relates to your audio world? What do you think is important for people to do to to keep things rolling to keep it successful? For me, it's really important that the studio is covering. It's what I call operational expenses. And that if I buy an equalizer and I need the money, I can sell the equalizer. But if I pay for rent or I pay for insurance, I can't sell that. Like there's no equity there that I'm possessing if I need money. And so for me, one really important thing is to not lose money on the stuff that I can't get reimbursed for later. And then if I want to be irresponsible and sink money into gear or responsible both at the same time, you know, that's a balance. I have to live with, and it's a scary and stressful one all the time. Sometimes there are questions like, do I take a vacation, or is that going to eat into money I really need for a microphone that I think I need for these projects I have coming up? And luckily, I feel like I'm at a point that I started to say I have things I need, and that's not true because I'm having problems with the converter not working right now, and I just bought an expensive DSR. So I guess the needs keep continuing, and it's always a sort of a trade-off of some years I feel like I sink more into the studio and make it a priority to let it lose a little bit of money and let it grow where it needs to. 
And some years I decide, you know what, I'm just going to take a nice vacation, and if that's money I could have used on gear, so be it. And it's always, I mean, another question is I'd love to have more time to work on music, and one of the decisions I've made is kind of working not-for-profit is not, I've I've advanced to a point where I'm at a decent level in that world, but it's not a lucrative job compared to a corporate job. And it's one that ethically I feel a lot better about. I really like the organization I work for and believe in it. And I'm in many ways happy to be out of a corporate life, and it gives me a lot more time to work on music, but it's just, or a lot more energy, I think, at least, but it's just another, these are all sets of balancing. And when I talk about money, I also always think about time, where I'm working all the time at two jobs, and it is definitely sacrificing time, you know, and I'm not 25 anymore and don't have as much energy, and I'm definitely sacrificing spending time with friends, maybe traveling when I'd want to. I mean, there's a lot of things I could be doing instead of just working at two jobs. And fortunately, I like one and love the other, and it's one I love being recording, and I certainly like my other job more than I've ever liked one. But there's a lot of trade-offs with all these things. And I don't know if that was exactly your original question, but maybe I kind of answered it. You actually even added more to it than, than I was intending, but I, I think the unanswered part of it would be your overall approach to to money management as a recording engineer. Well, there's not, how would I put it? I'm not very scientific about it because I have two different jobs and two different sets of income and two several different parts of expenses in my life. I feel like there's two things I could do. One is I could be a scientist and spend a lot of time and energy figuring it all out and coming up with the best solution. And the other is just I can trust my gut and hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> and so far I've gotten, I hope, pretty good at trusting my gut and hoping it works. So as long as that's workable, that's kind of how I do it. And the reason I gave that whole long-winded answer was probably that me trying to verbalize some of my intuitions. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Do you have equipment insurance? I do. Um, I got studio insurance when I was doing mobile, and I think I'm covered for even more mobile work than I do now. I could probably turn that down and save a little bit. It's an awful lot of money. I feel like it's worth it. When I moved into the dedicated space, we had to get an alarm that they'd never had in the space. And that's sort of something we needed either way, but it was absolutely mandatory for the insurance, and that's okay. I do not have any loss of work insurance. is the one big thing I don't have. Um, ah. It's not my primary source of income. I would not feel sabotaged if I couldn't work. So I've decided not to get loss of work. I only have the actual value of the gear covered. I want to come back to this loss of work thing. That's a good something to talk about. The uh, who do you use for your insurance, and do you do you recommend? That? I use the studio insurance program upstate, and I can't even remember his name right now. I think it's Joe. Is that Joe Monterello? Yes, it is. That guy is everywhere. Yeah, he's absolutely everywhere. <laughs> yeah, um, I run into him at uh, AES, mm -hmm. and um, and of course my conversation two weeks ago with Vance Powell. Vance uses him. I've used him. I know many people have used him. Chris Mews told me a great story. I hate name dropping, but I just did. Chris told me a great story that when he had the Dangerous Studio, they did have a claim for something, and Joe came through right away, and that was enough of an endorsement for me to know I was in the right place. I, I want to address this because I've never thought about this, and maybe that's naive of me, but loss of work insurance. Mm -hmm. What do you know about that? It's so It can be really complicated, so I don't know a lot because I haven't felt like I've needed it. I've talked to studios who even have loss of work. The studio has loss of work for engineers. And I think you can only get it for death and not for um, other unavailability. But that would be an extreme case where businesses have it. This case where it would affect me would be something like, you know, we're on high on the second floor, so I doubt a flood would affect us. But if hypothetically some sort of weather event shattered our windows and water came in, 
or if there was a terrible power surge that damaged some of our gear. Um, I'm not covered for that. And Interesting. I'm comfortable with that because the time it would take me to get up and running, I could afford, I would rather risk going into savings to cover rent for two months than to have to pay insurance on it. Right. For me, it's just, that's the money I'm losing is basically my rent and my insurance on the studio, and I had enough covered in savings to pay that for a couple of months if I couldn't work. Yeah, I guess one one way of creating your own personal insurance policy is to just take money that you would otherwise put into insurance and put it into a savings account and don't touch it. Mm-hmm. And for loss of work. It's an insurance policy. For loss of work, that's enough for me. But for gear, there's no way I could sit on the amount of money I would need to replace all my gear. Let's jump topics. Let's. I want to talk a little bit about the type of music that you work on. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that. It's artistically pretty diverse. I think the most frequent, it's actually gotten a little less diverse. Maybe not. I think the most frequent thing is I work with kind of, I would say older compared to some engineers, bands that have something to do with indie rock. Though I did do a heavy metal band this year. Younger bands seem to always have engineers chasing them. And the couple I've worked with, I seem to then lose because there's some studio with fancy gear that has a assistant engineer that wants to bring them in for cheap um, and can get a good deal. And in New York, there's a lot of that. Uh, Bands in my peer group just always seem to like having affordable engineering, like having someone who works in in a somewhat analog fashion that they recognize and understand and trust. I've had more than one artist come in and say, you know, I worked with someone who did everything in the box and I didn't understand anything about it. It's been really comfortable to work with you. I think my schedule and my price point work with bands who are kind of part-time, who are more like passionate artists sticking with their work than trying to grow a fan base. I really like not having to deal with managers, not having to deal with labels. I mean, I have friends who do both those jobs. I can't, I run a label. It's not the curse on either, but I like being away from some of those pressures and I just like working for artists who really want to make what they believe in. And a lot of the people I work with have some combination of making money off their art and making money off their profession where it works for them to hire an engineer to do at least some of the steps. Um, some people record themselves or some people record for cheaper or different people have different workflows and I try to work around that. Stylistically, I just did a heavy metal record this year, which I've never done before. In the past, I've worked with two different poetry projects. Um, I've done work with two different jazz groups, uh, three different jazz projects, actually, at least. So it's been a pretty diverse stylistic range, and that's I really like that, and that's really important to me, too. You said something that caught my attention there, and that is uh, artists wanting to understand what's going on technically. How often does that come up? For me, almost everyone I work with, at least, it varies in extent. But I think everyone, almost everyone I work with has been in different studios. Almost everyone I work with has been a musician a long time. A lot of them have recorded themselves and have workflows they're comfortable with, which sometimes can be a little bit of a point of friction if they're so used to working themselves in the box and they've never mixed on a console before. And on the other hand, just someone coming in and saying, I understand your workflow. It looks familiar to me. It's how I remember people making records. People have been doing rock records a long time. Sometimes just find comfort seeing a console and seeing my hands on the console and seeing me occasionally even moving faders. So it's worked in some ways in my favor. Sometimes it can be a challenge. There's one artist I've worked with who, when he was in bands when he was younger, kind of deferred to his band members on what the records would sound like and just didn't get that involved in the studio and finally decided and he was going to learn, and it was at a point where he was like, well, no, I don't like that compressor. Try a different one for the vocals. And I watched him literally learn that. But, like, I make something for my studio partner, and I tried, I used that PVLA-2A imitation, and I was trying that on a vocal, and it just wasn't sitting, and he's like, what's that there like? And he pointed to the purple NC-77, and I was like, you've probably heard 1176 before, and he's like, yeah, try that, and we were both happier. So that level of awareness... I'm kind of used to it with artists, and I do better with artists who really know that much about what they want. There's so many ways a record can go, and it's so hard to get inside an artist's head and know what they want. And I don't want to be the, scare quotes, genius imposing a vision. I'm frankly not that good at it. I don't think, I mean, not that I, I don't mean I'm bad at having ideas, because I think I have good ideas, but I'm bad at sort of telling people what their record should be. And I've tried that and I've always felt like a jerk and it didn't, doesn't work for my personality and it doesn't work for the kind of artists I like working with. 
And so I do better when uh, I work with someone who really knows what they want, and especially if they can communicate with me. Maybe we have to listen to things up front and talk about what they like about certain records or what I do or don't like about their references, or if they know enough to kind of work with me to change different compressors and EQs to get the sound they want. But for me, that's a much more rewarding process, and it's enabled me to make records that sound wildly different from each other, which I've really enjoyed. Let me ask you this. With regards to having the artist participate in the process, do you ever feel like they're, the ideas that they bring to the table are kind of half-informed? Like, they know a little bit about recording, but just enough, you know, it's the typical argument, just enough to be dangerous. Well, how would I put it? I try not to think about it that way, because I probably would do that, and it leads to adversarial situations. When I was younger, I probably did that more. And instead, I try not to think about what they know or what I know or what they don't know. I try to just find out what they want. And I admit sometimes I do a bad job and end up kind of looking at what they don't know. But when I do that, it always works, comes out badly. And instead, when I ask, when I say, you know, I don't understand what you want, or here's the problem, technical problem with what you want is it might not translate to different speakers. Or the technical problem with what you want is that that bass sound is making the guitar sound terrible. But once I can understand what they want, if I can find an actual technical problem, I can show them. You know, oh, we turned the vocals up on the speakers. Let's switch to those other speakers. Now it's too loud. Let's switch back. Now it's right. So the problem wasn't that the vocals were too quiet. The problem was that they were EQ wrong or something. Sometimes I've run into these situations where I really try to, I'll call it over-listen. Mm-hmm where I've taken everything the artist has said and really taken them at their word. And in the end, with regards to a mix, I had this one record in particular where the artist was like, I want it to be like, you know, this, this, and this. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And then I did it, my version of that. And they came back and they said, no, man, this is all wrong. And so I said, well, let me, let me do it how I think it should be. So I went back and I remixed and, you know, this is just in the initial first few songs of a record, so mm-hmm. it's not like the whole record mm-hmm. was mixed. And I came back and presented that, and they were like, that's what I'm talking about. It's that What you did was perfect. And I found that my uh, that I sometimes have an inability to properly translate some of those phrases because, like, words like warm or fat or, you know, rich or whatever just, can be misinterpreted. I try to get away from all those immediately. If people use words that I think are a cliche, um, that's one of my big goals is just get out of that conversation. You know, what kinds of records do you like? What, you know, what do you like about that? Or what, I mean, luckily most of the artists I work with don't come with words that cliche very often. I had a really, I've had a really hard time with present because present to you and me means something very specific. And I've realized that artists don't use present the way you and I do. They don't mean it to mean 2K. So that's one where I often, that's one I hit where artists will say present and they might mean louder. (laughs) If they come in with words you're not really, you feel that there could be miscommunication on, do you say, let's let's change the the words we're using to... I say, do you want, this is how I'm interpreting what you're saying, is that what you want? Or what you're saying kind of might be like this record where the bass sounds like this. Is that the kind of record you're talking about? And hopefully find one they actually have heard. You know, try to say, I think this is what you mean. Am I right? And that will often open a conversation. Do you find that when you really get them to define, do you find that that really solves a lot of problems that that could potentially crop up? I think it makes the record better. How about if I put it that way? I'm not sure if it solves problems. Because I think I could get a different mix that would also... When I think of problems, I think of technical problems. Like a mix doesn't translate from one speaker to another. Or there's this weird low-frequency rumble that won't get translated right on mastering. Or those are things I think of as problems. But I think if I really understand what an artist wants, the more I can get into their head, the more I can make something really special and distinctive if it's their personality. And that's what I'm trying to do. That's the other half. of When I think about what I'm trying to do, there's two parts of it. Maybe three parts, but the two biggest parts are, one, solving technical problems, and two, figuring out what the heck the artist wants. And then if there's a third part that's less important, it's bringing in some of my own vision of how a record could be better. 
and some records need more of that than others. But, right, so maybe a third part is just trying to match standards so that a listener won't think something is a mistake, even if it's what the artist thinks is normal. So that might be a third part, is pulling something a little more referential, a little more sort of classic sounding, so that it will be less surprising to a listener. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. You know, we we like to take care of, we like the business to be one discussion and the art to be another. Do you do you have a hard time talking with artists about money? Um, I usually tell them up front what I charge and I tell them it's sort of the rate that I try to keep fair for everyone I work with. And occasionally someone can't um, afford it, but in general, or occasionally, like I said, people just get crazy offers from someone else. But in general, I think people who are coming to me know that it costs money to work and know that I'm offering a fair price, or I shouldn't say no because it's an opinion. How about agree with me that I'm offering a fair price? So there's, I don't have a lot of conflict. And I can kind of tell someone up front, this is my rate. And it's hard for me to move much because I think it's fair and it's what I charge everybody. Do you ever deal, do you deal in deposits? No, everyone, I like to get paid kind of as I finish a couple days for a lot of reasons. One of which is I don't have to remember how many hours I've worked or days I've worked. That's actually the biggest reason. People I work with, I trust. And Nathan, I don't like to let a record run up so much debt to me that I have to worry that, oh, I have to do this huge collection at once. And I did that on a record this year, and I think it came out fine overall, but it's not my preferred way of working. My preferred thing is you work with me for three days, and usually I work and stop because everyone's, I don't work two weeks solid because I don't have that time, and none of the artists I work with usually do. So if I work with someone for three days and then stop for a couple days, you pay me for the three days. And then if you're not happy, you can always go somewhere else and take what we finish with you, and it's fair to everybody. But fortunately, that doesn't happen very often. I'd be curious to to know what percentage of your clients work uh, or pay you in cash or check versus credit card? I've, I've yet to get, I've gotten PayPal. I've never gotten a credit card. Um, I would say it is probably 60% cash, 20% check, 20% credit, uh, PayPal right now. And do you ever, do you ever have clients bail on you and just skip out on the bill? I've not really had problems with that. Maybe it's their dangers of working with friends, but one of the pluses is everyone's pretty honest. And even if someone says, you know, I don't have money right now, I just say, tell me when you're going to pay me, and you're going to pay me that day. And no one's ever had a problem. Yeah. I mean, no one's even been unrealistic about that. Nobody said, let me pay you in two years. You know, if someone says, I'll have money, you know, as of today, it'll be three months, it'll be March 1st, I will pay you this much money on March 1st. I've always had that money in the first week of March. So at the end of the day, a lot of what you're saying is basic, simple communication with people. I think so. Whether you're talking money or art. Yeah. I mean, it's just tried to be as honest as I can and set realistic boundaries for everybody and just try to find out what people want and find out how to make them happy and then make sure that, you know, it's fair to everybody and make sure everybody, everybody meaning both me and them live up to it. So let me ask you something I've never asked any of, of the guests on the show. And I, I'm a firm believer in that we improve and, and we, um, we, get, we get better over time by making mistakes mm-hmm. and learning from those mistakes. 
What are some mistakes that you've made that you've really learned from? There was one artist I was mixing with who really did not want to mix on a console. He wanted the flexibility of being able to make the revised decisions down the line. And I should have just not, I should have basically not taken that project for mixing. I'm happy with how my tracking came out on that record and they ended up mixing with someone else and I think it was a much better thing and me trying to mix that record just put a strain on that friendship and on that record that was not fair to anyone. Either I could have done stems potentially for certain things, but I'm not sure anyone would have been, I'm not quite, it's not the way I'm best set up to work and I still don't know that that artist would have been happy. So what I should have done on that one was just turn it down up front. And <laughs> I haven't had that happen since, but I think it's made me better at making sure I explain up front what I do and how I work and what happens. Trying to slow down and check with artists more. I think sometimes I tried when I didn't, for example, have a mix set up at home to rush mixes in other studios, and that didn't go as well as it should have almost ever, even in the best of cases. And having my own mix set up and being very, very easily able to just say, you know, worst case, you have two songs, you hate them, we'll just redo them and we'll worry about money, whatever. That's my fault, I'll live with that problem, and then we'll get the rest of the record right from there. You know, it's only one day's work or two days' work, and it's not the end of the world now that I have my own space. So I think that's one of the things that really drove me to have... I had some bass management problems in my living room, and so having my own space where I can have better bass sounds and a little more volume has really helped with that. And also bigger monitors, that actually both buying the bigger monitors and having room that's appropriate for them. So some of these, I think, are some of the big mistakes I made early on. One mistake I made over and over that I thought about listening to one of the other podcasts when I would buy a piece of gear because I thought it would really help for a session. And almost every time it didn't for a lot of reasons, one of which was I really hadn't figured out how to optimally use it yet. And the thing I thought that piece of gear would be good for in almost every case except the DSR I just bought because that's only good for one thing anyway. But most of the time, if I bought a mic or a preamp and thought it'll be really good for this record because I'll put it on snare and it's going to sound great, I put it on snare and it wouldn't sound good. So buying something at the last minute to use on a session almost always was a bad decision. So when I think about buying gear, I always think about it as a long-term. I mean, if you try it out a little and learn and see what it's good on, it seems like it's going to fill a hole because I don't have enough. Too many of my large diaphragm condensers are bright and it seems like a really good dark one, and maybe it'll fill that hole. But if I buy it thinking it's going to solve a problem on the immediate session, it almost never does. Yeah. I I think a lot of people I'm discovering suffer from that fantasy of they see a piece of gear in a in the maybe the Sweetwater catalog or online or wherever and they think, ooh, that's gonna that's gonna change my life. And they they start to fantasize around that piece of gear, uh, about what it's gonna be like and what it's gonna do. But ultimately, it seems more often than not, it's not always the right decision unless there's a specific call for that piece of gear, uh, which I think Robert, Robert Smith talked about in, in his interview. I think for me, if there's a hole in my studio that is, how do I put it? If I look at something as like a spanning set to use like a scientific way of talking about it and I see an obvious gap, then if I fill that gap, odds are it will help me down the line. So I think from that perspective, when I look at buying gear, it's really helpful. But if I think it's going, it almost never solves the exact problem I think it's going to. By having better breadth, having the whole scope of options better covered usually helps me. But trying to guess which specific instrument a preamp will sound good on or a microphone will sound good on before I own it is always a bad guess. I appreciate you, uh, especially my last minute jump in to say, hey, can you can you do it today? Oh, I'm glad it worked out today, and I'm glad we both had time. It's been really fun, and I really appreciate you including me on the show. Oh, I I, I knew I was going to have you on the show long ago. I just I didn't know when. Appreciate. I'm flattered it. to be early on too. <laughs> uh, happy New Year to you, and Happy New Year uh, to you, Matt. Have a great day. Get back to your kids who probably miss you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go get back to them now. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. I will talk to you soon. All right. There it was. Steve Silverstein. Great dude. Great information. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Let's wrap it up. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks to all you subscribers. As usual, spread the word. Go over to the website, subscribe so you know when the new show's coming out, or get on get on over to iTunes and get your uh, subscription there. Questions? Send it on over to matt at workingclassaudio.com. Check out Twitter and Facebook to stay in touch with us. Do all the typical things as uh, as you would. And uh, yeah, man, welcome to 2015. Glad to have you all aboard and uh, look forward to what the year offers. See you next time. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.